Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show educator, strength and conditioning coach, and the author of the book Setting the Bar, Shane Trotter. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Shane's early life, his journey into education, training the youth athlete, creating an environment for kids to thrive, standardized testing, student mental health, physical education, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Shane Trotter. Enjoy. So Shane, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Phil White for connecting us and secondly, to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you, James. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and, and absolutely thank you, Phil White. He, uh, he's, he's an amazing guy and a great mentor and I'm thrilled to be here. So we, you have written an incredible book. As we discussed before we hit record, there's a lot of uh, perspectives and passions that, that we definitely align with. But I'd love to start with your own personal journey and kind of walk to the point where you even decided to write it. So let's start at the very, very beginning. Where were you born? And tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was born in Anchorage, Alaska, or actually Elmendorf Air Force Base. My dad was uh, my dad explains a lot of my unique perspective on the world, I think. Uh, he, my dad was an emergency room physician uh, who left the emergency room. While he was an ER doctor, he got his PhD in philosophy, and he left the emergency room to get into doctoral uh, philosophy and medical ethics. Um, so, you know, just very w- wide-ranging. He was also a black belt and kind of an... Um, adrenaline junkie, just just a n- not a stereotypical person. Uh, and so that that definitely influenced me a lot. Um, we talked a lot about honor and, you know, kind of virtues growing up at the dinner table, which is abnormal. Uh, so all of that was in me. And, uh, uh, so, you know, I was born in Alaska. Like I said, we moved a little bit. I, I ended up going through high school, uh, mostly in the St. Louis area, the, the Illinois side of the Mississippi River. And um, I I knew I had phenomenal coaches and teachers. I knew um, that I wanted to teach because some of my my greatest influences were my coaches and teachers. So I went into to education um, intent to change the world. I was going to be the educator that that, uh, you know, that 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 it influenced people like like I was influenced, but that, you know, I heard about the flaws in the American education system. And I was hell bent on changing them all by myself. And um, I got into education and um, was uh, really mystified by just 
uh, how low the standards were and, and, and how many roadblocks there were to, uh, to doing what was right, uh, and, and, and creating the impact that I wanted to create. Um, I, I eventually I gravitated towards strength and conditioning, uh, because here in Texas, uh, athletics are a big deal. And I found it to be one of the few places where you could really push people towards excellence. Um, but I, I find that that's a little bit misleading for a lot of people, uh, because, uh, I am a giant nerd. I love, uh, you know, I'm a history major, uh, but I love learning in general. I have a passion for psychology, um, for, for, for really every aspect of, of, uh, or every subject and aspect of human development. So, um, it, you know, I did not leave the classroom for lack of love for education. It, uh, it's my truest passion, uh, thinking about, how education should look and trying to meet those needs is my truest passion. Um, but I did find a, a, an avenue to, uh, st- to to become a full-time strength and conditioning coordinator, which has really opened up a lot more um, autonomy in my work schedule, which has allowed me to do a lot more writing and pouring into some of my other creative projects. So um, that that is what led me there. All right. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. Though. <laughs> So an ER physician who decides to go down the route of uh, philosophy, but then specializes on medical ethics, what were some of the the common denominators that your dad had frustrations with when it came to the world of medicine? The bureaucracy is, uh, my dad has no patience for bureaucracy and for um, nonsensical uh, roadblocks to doing what is right. Um, and, and he's, he's has a lot of stories about people who kind of get drunk with their own power, bureaucrats who get drunk with their own power and they're thrilled to come in and, uh, try to write people up on these minor, uh, infractions, uh, without any recognition for the fact that they're, they're getting in the way of people who are trying to save other people's lives. Um, I have a feeling that resonates with you. <laughs> I, I got a feeling it's a lot of people listening that their heads are nodding right now. Yep. Yep. I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yes. So that was, that was a lot of what, uh, frustrated my dad, uh, that, that he could not stand. Um, he is, um, probably, uh, libertarian, uh, somewhat libertarian by politics, but definitely libertarian by disposition. Um, and, uh, and, 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 yeah, he's definitely uh, inculcated a strong sense of uh, uh, commitment to do what's right, not what is uh, what is uh, policy per se, but <laughs> the the right thing in me. So yeah. Now, what martial arts um, was he doing? What was he a black belt in? Uh, Kamabushi Kai, um, which is uh, just a, a former, you know, it's a it's a karate um, and. Um, he, yeah, he was actually on the cover of Black Belt magazine at one point, um, which is was pretty cool uh, for me at you know my adolescent age. <laughs> so we're going to obviously get into a whole bunch of subjects from parenting, from um, you know, social media. I mean, all these these influences that are definitely creating a more challenging environment for a young boy or girl to thrive. When you look back at your childhood, because I, I look back at mine, I grew up on a farm in England. 
almost every single meal was around the kitchen table. It lasted, you know, especially the the Sunday roast and those kind of things. It would last like two hours, you know, just conversation. Um, you know, all these different types of people walk through the door from from literally travelers and gypsies through the extended royal family. So <laughs> I was so fortunate, which is why I try not to be kind of condescending in in the interviews because I was very fortunate to be raised in an environment that really did set me up for success i mean i was you know there were there was an orchard you know there was a a vegetable garden all the things i had to work with my hands and muck out stables and lamb sheep and so i had all the things that you know roll eyes kids today you know i had that upbringing that was so fortunate but so many people don't when you look back at yours what were some of the elements that were in your childhood that allows you to have the perspective of some of the problems today um, well, I mean, first and foremost, just to um, to to have a strong sense of um, of virtue, of what virtue was. This was, you know, these these weren't vague concepts in my family. They were things we talked about at the dinner table. Um, they really, and we talked about heroes, and we had a, a strong sense of, of of what you know who were heroes. We 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 told. You know, there, there were these stories that we told, um, you know, the, the very clear ideas I had of, you know, John McCain and his experience in Vietnam War, um, of Pat Tillman. And, you know, so so just that clarity of of what it meant to live a good life uh, and, and of what the expectations were, that there was, uh, you know, that there were things that were a lot more important than uh, being happy in any moment or, you know, you know, it, it, just feeling good. Um, so I think that in itself was unique. Um, the, you know, the other thing, a f- philosopher for a father, um, debate was in the water. You know, it, it, our, um, our home was an idea lab. It was never, uh, there was never any sense that, uh, your opinion, <laughs> uh, was, uh, should should just be you know your opinion should be respected just because you had it uh you know i you know the the concept of truth was really important to us um other things advantages i had for sure like my father at a really young age uh, you know he made it a habit of at the dinner table quizzing us on things i remember in in, in fourth grade um the the teacher didn't believe that I could name all the presidents in order. And, you know, when I did, you know, I had this great sense of pride and that, you know, kind of led me to, to love history, to, um, and to, to take pride in learning. Um, reading was that it was like, it was a duty growing up. Like it was something that, you know, I just assumed every single adult, uh, was reading books as, as, you know, just as a, as a way of being in the world. Um, you know, so, so th- those were kind of attitudes and dispositions and expectations that that, that were set for me um, as as a young person. Uh, my, you know, we we were athletes. We, there was an expectation of uh, kind of kind of being an athlete, um, taking care of yourself in that regard. Um, so so a, a, a lot of those, um, a, a lot of that that. I, I guess that those expectations about how the world worked and what it meant to be a good person in this world, um, I, I certainly took for granted as a as a high schooler, but but I don't now. <laughs> now you mentioned um, the, the the household being athletes. Your dad was a martial artist. Did you go down that road, or were there other sports that you were passionate about? No, I I, I did martial arts in elementary, and then I um, I. 
I kind of uh, got look at you with your tea. You're so British. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's green tea, so it's Japanese. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> I'm very eclectic. <laughs> I see. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I I drifted away from martial arts. Football was really my sport. I was I loved football growing up, uh, American football, and um, and uh, you know I did track and field as well. Um, but that was my main sport growing up. Um, and uh, um, but you know grew up playing outside all day long. That was another thing that's unique in, in in my upbringing. I think is that you know there was. Uh, especially comparable today is uh, there was an expectation that I was going to be outside all summer, that I would be walking to school, that I would be, you know, just going to the park after school and playing with friends. That that was normal for me, um, which which certainly helped create a sense of confidence that I could go out in the world and uh, a uh, a love for, you know, being outside playing, you know, that that continues today. Now, what about career aspirations when you're in the high school age? What were you dreaming of becoming? You know, it, it was really I wanted to be a, a middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears. And then uh, around high school, I think I let that that dream go away and and, and it shifted pretty quickly to becoming a, a, a high school teacher. Um, and that was just because um, my greatest influences were high school teachers. Uh, I certainly flirted with the idea of wanting to go into uh, the Marines or, or or something like that at times I, I flirted with that as well um and my brother was army infantry and so that, that was there was patriotism and, and a sense of duty to country was was always there um but uh yeah being a teacher for the most part was was my my greatest aspiration um throughout high school anyway um I didn't in college I, I became in a far better student. And I, I dug into my studies even more. And um, it was probably at that age, I started to think maybe a little bit bigger. I, I have this natural love for learning and education. But I think, think um, you know, I, I started to think, you know, potentially th- that I could start a school someday or, or, or maybe uh, do something a little bit more entrepreneurial, uh, which is still in there. <laughs> well, you have this lens now as an educator. When you think back to being a student, what were the the pros and the cons of the way your schooling was as a child? Um, the pros were I'm, I had very um, I had very good teachers. Where I grew up, it, um, most of my teachers had a master's degree in their content area. Um, that that was how it was structured in Illinois, which was fantastic. It's not been my experience in Texas, um, so that was that was really neat. So there was. Uh, there was an expectation that, that, that there would be, you know, for example, in history or social studies courses, that there would be essay and short answer on every single test, um, that there was a lot of reading and even in high school. Um, so that I was I found myself um, far more prepared for college than most of my peers. Uh, and I thought that was fantastic. The, uh, you know, some of the the less um, the, the not so good elements of, of school are really what, what, what I still see today. Um, you know, there's, there's little, little to no instruction in, um, in, in personal psychology and organizational practices um, in, in, in how to, um, there were, probably wasn't enough Socratic debate and uh, exposure to uh, basic logic and learning, you know, the, those foundational logical fallacies so that you could pin, uh, poke holes in arguments. 
Um, so, uh, so, so that was lacking, but you know, also just the health and school in general, it, it was the, that way when I was in, 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 in school. And it's certainly that way today that the, the, um, you're basically in a, in, in, in a poor health factory, uh, that, 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 pumps out, you know, uh, unhealthy people, you know, there's vending machines everywhere, soda at lunch, sweets at lunch, uh, the, the, the norms, the typical structure, what you're led to believe is normal is uh, is a recipe for, for lifelong poor health, unless you figure out how to change it. So you get into education, you have a love for history before we even get into your kind of educational journey and out the other side, kind of educate us all on the evolution, or one could argue the devolution of the way school is today. I know that, you know, it was a certain way, the kind of small town schoolhouse, and then, if I'm not mistaken, the kind of industrial revolution paid into it, and we're starting to groom people more to be able to work in an office or a factory. I know those were influences, but, you know, you're you're the, uh, the expert in this. Kind of walk us through you know, was it better at a certain period in our history? And, and how have we got to where we are today? Oh, yeah. I mean, you you, you have the one room schoolhouse. And then, of course, as you said, it kind of becomes an industrial model where you're trying to to pump out and, you know, industrial workers who are very good at, at uh, doing a being a cog in a machine. Uh, and of course, there's the uh, the, the Dewey progressive re- revolution, too where we we start to think more about um you know the, the Dewey progressive approach to education is is a lot more individualized there's a lot uh, l- less emphasis on uh character and uh a, and a uh, I guess a classical approach to education uh and a, and a lot more um you know the, kind of this this sense that that everyone will um will learn what they need to do by following their own uh their, their own passions. Um and uh I, I don't know that I find that all bad. I do love a classical approach to education because I think that there is a strong sense of uh commitment to uh finding what is true, what is good and what is beautiful and organizing a uh an education around uh the the importance of learning as a way of being rather than learning for a career. Uh, I think that's a very important distinction to make. Um, learning as a way of being versus, you know, learning uh, because I need the specific uh, the specific uh, skill in in uh, in the workforce. Um, I think that's an especially important distinction to make today because the jobs of the world um, we have no idea what careers are are are. are our, our children are, are going to need need to be prepared for um but they what they need is they need to to know how to how to learn they need to have, to know how to poke holes in arguments to uh to to strive towards truth um and they need to to discover a real love of learning um because i don't think that you learn anything at a deep level without um some sort of intrinsic motivation um and and so uh, th- that is certainly lacking today. If you want to track what where education has gone wrong, um, there the incentives in education today are such that you are um, the overwhelming emphasis is on the lowest common denominator. Um, the 
there's very little uh, that is pulling people to aspire. Uh, the standardized tests, you know, t- for example, the the Texas uh, standardized test uh, for for freshmen in biology, it's the STAR test. Um, you know, we we will brag about how over ninety percent of our students passed the STAR biology test. Um, but what we don't tell people is that the passing standard is eighteen correct out of fifty four questions. Um, and this is the sort of thing, this is the sort of magic trick we play play all the time. Um, what that does is, uh, in effect, is it puts takes the teacher and it puts all their attention on those that are failing the test. Um, and uh, we, we can, you know, teachers can know uh, with, with with relative certainty that, you know, students coming from from from, you know, good homes that have some sort of academic expectation of them, you don't even have to worry about them. They're going to pass these tests. So the teacher is, is led to put all their attention on that lowest common denominator and to take that, you know, a few steps further. Um, you know, there's IEPs, there's 504s, these are legal documents that, uh, that, that are sometimes, you know, extremely extensive and that have very unrealistic uh expectations of the accommodations that a teacher is supposed to be able to to maintain for someone with some sort of learning disability or you know etc um and so again these are legal documents it takes you know you you create a situation where teachers are having to juggle five six you know sometimes as many as 10 of these students in their class and their specific accommodation and it creates a scenario where the teachers can hardly, you know, they only have so much attention and energy, and it's all going uh, to those to those students. And, 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 you know, so you're incentivizing uh, teachers to, you know, we, we've gotten to a point now where uh, in a standard educational classroom, uh, almost no one is doing essay tests outside of English. Uh, there's, you know, not near enough writing, uh, which is particularly prob- uh, problematic in a, in a world of A.I., um, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we've gotten to a point where we're, we're note-taking unless you're in an AP or, or, you know, um, college, um, college equivalent course, um, you, you're not taking notes, you know, we're handing students, you know, fill in the blank notes. Uh, and there's also this kind of deification of technology, um, rather than understanding that the, uh, that the, you know, that AI is, uh, so powerful that it it requires a, a, a deeper capacity to think and a uh, and work. Rather than understanding that, we've kind of allowed technology to substitute for human capacity. So to we, we we've participated in our, in our own human devolution uh, and and deified just any use of technology in the classroom is seen as a great thing. Um, and and so that you know this is this is the exact opposite of what you need in in a uh, in in the modern world. Um, but uh, but so those are, those are, are are if I had to pinpoint some of the the most problematic uh, trends in education, those would those are them. I'm seeing that from where I'm at at the moment through AI, and I've had people say I'm writing a book at the moment. Say, oh, you can use AI, and then it can you know write a chapter for you, and then you can move it around. I'm like, that sounds fucking awful. <laughs> that's the opposite of creativity you know what i mean yes. that's back to like you said oh just it's like the 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 um the career tests you know you used back in the day you used to plug in your information but yeah you're dumb as a box of rocks you could be a plumber or you know sure you could scrape toilets for a living you know good luck kid and it was, it was the yeah. same thing it was two-dimensional you know 
bullshit. Yes. So yes. yeah, I mean, technology is amazing. We are, you know, we're doing this now through space. It's a, it's incredible. It's mind blowing. However, yes. yeah, there's there's this leaning in, and this is what I see now. Oh, if you want to put content out, you know, AI is it? You know, chat a GPT or whatever it is. Someone told me, and I tried it. I'm like, this is terrible. Absolutely. For for me, like if you're a creative person who speaks from the heart, this has no place whatsoever. Now the AI that's transcribing this conversation, that's pretty amazing. Like yeah. to, to put it into words, so I don't have to sit there and type, which I wouldn't do. Um, yeah, <laughs> phenomenal. You know, the Skype. I mean, the Zoom that we're talking about, phenomenal. But absolutely, when it comes to the effort and the personal creativity and that love of learning. If you're not careful, you can be like, oh, a little autocorrect. You don't even know how to spell. You're fine. And now the, you know, the entire system goes around one day. And we got a pe- bunch of people that speaking in, you know, LOL. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so often it seems like the, the people who make projections as to what this technology is going to mean at the outset, it, their projections are so silly and you know, kind of two dimensional, as you say. It, it's just, it, it, it doesn't even make sense. I remember. Um, to give you an idea of the sort of short-sighted thinking that's so common in education. I remember when I first got in, um, there was so much talk in education about history not really being important to kids anymore because they could just Wikipedia everything. And it's like you you fundamentally don't understand the value of history. You know, looking dates up was never the point of history. It was about understanding principles uh, about hu- the organization of human societies that you can see recurring throughout time. And it's about understanding context, all right? The context of an era and how it creates certain trends. Um, it, it's about, you know, for, you know, for example, uh, the understanding uh, the role of technology throughout history and in, in, in time and place, the role of disease, whatever it is. Uh, it takes a lot of context. You need to be able to reference Many, many, many different uh, scenarios and situations uh, to to be able to really understand how uh, how how different elements work throughout history. Um, so, you know, the idea that you can look something up on Wikipedia uh, doesn't 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 make uh, history less valuable. The, the the reality is, in a world where there is this much content and this much information being thrown in at us at all times, where where there's so many different perspectives, it's more important than ever that we understand history, so that we can make sense of you know arguments and and and, and kind of pick out uh, what w- what opinions are BS and not. Um, so you know, th- this is the sort of thing. Um, that's so common <laughs> with uh, with new technology. So one of the things I think that is terrifying, and you hear this push to you know removing books from schools, you know, but then there's other ones that are totally fine that are talking about some obscure stuff, you know. So that's that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> but I want to kind of get your perspective on this. As I've got older and I've learned more and I've I've become slightly wiser, and I always was into. I was into history and and the world and 
definitely the kindness and compassion side and it stayed with me my whole life so like when i was really young i was reading about uh, stanley livingston and discovering victoria falls and how he helped you know basically began the abolition of slavery by the british and that you know mm-hmm. that was endearing to me i watched you know cry freedom instead of robocop at the cinema one day partly because i wouldn't they wouldn't let me watch robocop but you know was blown away and i was bawling at the end you know of the atrocities that was going there in that particular event um but now, so here I am now, you know, firefighter for 14 years, a very unique perspective on the world. And I'm looking back and going, there is a glaring common denominator when it comes to suffering and war and death. And that is when a tyrannical few get to the point where they, you know, corral the masses and get them to do things that they probably never would have fucking done if that person was never there. And we see it time and time and time again, you know, with with slavery, with genocide, with, and I would argue now, the division of the last two, you know, political parties, different color tie, same exact shit bag, trying to deliver, you know, (laughs) separate people rather than bring them together. So why is it that we're not learning this lesson when it's so glaring century after century that the people, if kept together as a community rather than divided, actually do want to cohabit and do want to live in a, in a relatively peaceful world. And, but, you know, over and over again, a small group of people seem to dupe at the masses in their country. Well, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think it's extremely complex. Um, a, a large reason is that we don't learn history and that the nature of the the world is to be uh, unequal and to be, um, you know, economics is, is, is about how to deal with scarcity. There's a scarcity of the things we want, how to, how to make decisions when there's an opportunity cost. And because our own personal interests are, uh, often at odds with each other and we, we struggle to compromise. Um, it's very easy for, uh, for people that are not well educated, for people that are, have, have not learned, uh, the importance of, compromise and dialogue it's very easy to just be get upset and point the finger and to do us versus them um so that's something that people who want power have been able to play on for a long time particularly when there are um when we don't know our history um and and, and the thing that is makes this this even easier today obviously is social media um which is is you know built to play on our emotions and to make us more emotional and to uh, give us a very, um, you know, a siloed perspective so that we are even, even, even more prone to confirmation bias and and not able to see other people's perspectives. Um, But even more, uh, not just social media, these are kind of your, your stereotypical responses. I think also you have to factor in the amount of entertainment um, in 1985, uh, a guy named Neil Postman wrote a book called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Um, and, uh, and, and basically at the time, it's the rise of cable. And, and, and we just have so it, it's so easy to to be distracted uh, and, and to 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 kind of just not do the work uh, to have anything but a superficial understanding um, and so, uh, that's of course only gotten worse since 1985, you know, we're, we're, you know, almost 40 years later and, and, uh, you know, the, the amount of, you know, we are truly entertaining ourselves to death by and large. Um, 
So I think those are the, those are the the many factors that go into that. Well, I appreciate your perspective. Getting back to your kind of journey, as you started being taught how to be an educator, I think the problem is, again, it's like you said, it's that black and white conversation with so many things. You know, oh, these freaking teachers, they're not doing their job. Well, I would argue there's some great teachers and some terrible teachers in a very broken system. And I know Absolutely. I've been very, very lucky. My son, I mean, I've got to see both. I've got to see phenomenal teachers mostly. I had an issue where a principal deviated from all written protocols and it ended up with my son being sent in a 72-hour psychiatric hold completely for no reason like completely unjustified wow. so technically kidnapped my child yeah. um, and uh and there was the sro the 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 uh school resource officer was resource a part of that officer. too and basically a couple of jobs worth wanted to just get on with their their evening and uh you know didn't even contact me the parent i actually found out by trying to find out why the hell he hadn't got home already so wow. a complete you know fucking awful but he has had some phenomenal teachers outside of that. And I've never won to paint, you know, entire group just because of a bad experience. So I know there are some amazing, you know, men and women that spend, you know, a lot of money out of their own pocket just to put things in their classroom. And they'll, you know, maybe take care of some of the kids that they know, you know, maybe aren't eating or, you know, need clothes or whatever it is. So some beautiful humans in education. But as with medicine, I'm sure your dad talks about this, that we're not taught about exercise and nutrition and sleep and the proactive sure. preventative elements. What were some of the glaring things that you saw with the educational preparation of a teacher through your eyes? Well, that's a great question. I, I had a, a um, few phenomenal educational uh, professor, prof professors in, 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 uh, in, in the education department at TCU where I went. Um, most notably, um, my educational psychology teacher that, um, was phenomenal. And if I can say anything, it's that most teachers I know don't get that background. Um, the big glaring missing element in most teachers educational background is that they have no, uh, training in, in, to understand, uh, most educators have no idea how people learn the psychology of how people learn best. They don't, they do not understand how to study, uh, you know, or, or all, you know, there's a great book called ultra learning. Um, uh, but, but there's a science behind how people learn best. And, uh, we've, most educators are never taught that and they never teach students that, which is a glaring, uh, issue. Um, the, you know, the, the other thing is, is that, um, there is too much in education, there is too much um, kind of a kumbaya approach to teaching. Um, it's very, um, it's not a hard science in any way, shape or form. Um, so, so too much of it is, is you feel this way or, or we just say these broad statements like, like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, of a specific one, but we, we say these broad statements about, you know, uh, it, it's important to, to, uh, to, you know, give students um, to, to recognize that modern students uh, are often uh, very distracted. So to give them a lot of options for, uh, for, um, you know, searching the web and doing things like that. These are things that you're told, but they don't have any bearing in like how, how, 
how students actually learn or the or, or the needs of the student. Um, so so those are them. Obviously, uh, we, we don't teach uh, our teachers how to be healthy. Uh, we don't really do a good job of giving our educators access to um, to wellness, uh, you know, to resources to 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 promote their own wellness, um, which which is uh, going to transfer down to their students. So those those are issues too. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing is that that education is just not a hard science. Um, that we don't teach we don't teach students to, we don't teach teachers how to learn. Uh, we don't teach uh, the science of learning. Um, we don't teach teachers how to think clearly. Uh, to you know, basic logic, logical fallacies, um, so that you know we get into to education, and um, there's not very concrete direction on what what actually matters. Um, I, I I would say that there's kind of this dogma amongst educators that you need to be a trained educator to become an educator, and you know, so um, there's a lot of emphasis on. On, 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 on that public schools are better than private schools and in all these other realms because we are trained educators. We're trained to be educators where you could go be a high school teacher and you don't necessarily have to have a degree in education or an educational certification. And uh, my experience is, is, is that um, you learned it, you learn to be a teacher by teacher. Uh, it's, it's the only, the only real uh really valuable training and education I've had was my student teaching was getting in there and actually doing the thing. Um, and, um, that most talented people with leadership qualities can be good teachers. Um, that there are many teachers that are not good teachers. Uh, and there are many, like you said, that are amazing human beings, amazing teachers. And, uh, but that, that, that dogma doesn't, doesn't really hold true. Um, in my experience. I had a, a gentleman on, Passy Sauerberg, who's an uh, educator from Finland. He now lives in Australia, but he tours the world talking about the Finnish education system, which I think mm -hmm. most you know hold on the pinnacle. And it was incredible to hear just how different it was. And they looked at the child as the holistic human being. You know, like you said, it wasn't. I remember my son. I think he was eight doing a three-hour standardized test. An eight-year-old sitting in front of a computer for three hours. You know, their their school day is shorter. They actually bolster the schools that are, you know, struggling, whether it's, you know, socioeconomic, whatever it is that creates more trouble in that area. They actually give more resources, more funding to. Um, but also he I remember him saying that the teaching route, you had a much higher level of training. You know, I think it was, as you said, like a master's level. Um, when you look at our system now, are there other countries or maybe even small areas in the u.s that are, are doing it differently you think that we should push towards that model yeah i, I mean i've read a lot and, and written a lot about the the finished model uh you know and the the whole child approach um you know I, I know that every single student uh in um finland gets uh pe and art uh and music every single day or art or music every single day um and, and that that seems obvious to me the uh the, the uh, i've written a, actually a uh, initiative in my own district that is being used by by my son's elementary school uh where where they're they're now uh, required to get three recesses a day throughout elementary um that to me seems seems fundamental so so just looking at uh you know you can't you you have to honor basic human needs 
Um, it's, you know, any, any writer, any, anyone who wants to be productive, uh, they still have to honor their need for sleep. You can't just say, oh, you know, I could get more done if I had 24 hours to work every day. You will, you, you will be far less effective. And that's actually one thing I found writing my book is that uh, w- when I was pushing way too hard, when I was trying to write for, you know, eight hours a day uh, and not sleeping enough because I was trying to, 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 to find more time to write, I created crap. I, I created more issues than, than I, than I solved. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, when I finally scaled back and limited myself to three hours a day, you know, it really popped out. Uh, it, it was crisp, it was clean, it, it worked. Uh, and so they're just basic, you know, finite human realities. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, the, the Finnish system does a great job of that. Um, I'm sure that there are different areas of the country that do it better. Uh, for example, here in Texas, um, the the incentive structure I think does not promote a high enough level of teaching. Uh, that's not to say there aren't amazing teachers. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, some of the best teachers I've, I've ever met are, are here in Texas uh, at you know at the school I, I work at. Um, but the, uh, the the way our pay scale works is you come in making uh, pretty good money actually, um, but there is really no incentive to get a master's, um, and so. Uh, and particularly not a master's in your own content area. The pay bump for getting a master's is only like $2,000. So there's almost no incentive to go get a master's, and that's per year, uh, you know, b- before taxes. So there's almost no incentive to get a master's in your content area. The people that go get master's get a, get a master's in admin, and it's just a route to get out of the classroom. And you see that a lot. And uh, and so the, you know, the, the, in my in my experience, this the, the standard of scholarship is lower. Um, because you don't have people that are actual scholars in their subject. Um, in Illinois, where I grew up, the uh, nearly every teacher I ever had had a master's in their content area um, because the pay bump was so substantial for you to do that. So that created, you know, these were people that were true scholars in their content area. Um, you know, I remember my my you know teachers would, would, you know, on their off period, they'd come to another teacher, history teacher I have, and you'd see them start debating things. And there was this real passion uh, for the subject area. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that that is uh, something that from state to state might be different. Um, you know, so I, I'm sure that there is a, a broad range um, a, a, a of differences from state to state. Uh, to your point, um, there is definitely room, in my opinion, for uh, far better uh, professional development for educators. Um, the you know the basic understandings of of, of human psychology, um, of co- cognitive biases, uh, you know, an understanding of the mental health, you know, the causes of this mental health epidemic. Uh, too often, the approach in education is rather than to educate people about mental health and the causes of this mental health epi- epidemic. We just kind of give this Band-Aid approach. Everyone play these socio-emotional learning videos for your uh, your, your your class. Um, so we don't prepare the teacher, or teach the teacher, or, you know, even expect anyone. You know, I don't know hardly anyone in this giant school district I work in who has who understands these basic psych- psychological principles that can help under help people understand what is going on with the mental health epidemic right now. I mean, it's very basic stuff that all teachers be, should be taught. 
we don't bring anyone in to teach teachers and to develop them and give them an understanding. Um, we just kind of give this blanket or play these videos, uh, you know, and, and they're very superficial videos. I can give you an example. There's a, um, you know, anxiety. I had an anxiety disorder in college, so I learned it inside and out. It's uh, the most, I've often said, the most important thing that ever happened to me. Um, you know, it, I've grew a ton. It changed me entirely. It changed my outlook on the world and my passion. Um but I, I had to I had to really dig into uh, human psychology and understand psychology in order to work through this. Now, anxiety is a very, very treatable, uh, very well understood psychological ph phenomenon. Um, one of the you know, the, the probably the most well-founded uh, solution for it is exposure therapy. And uh, it basically, you know, an example of that is. Uh, if you have a phobia of fiber uh, of spiders, you you know, an anxiety, uh, you know, through exposure therapy with a good, uh, good psychologist, you can usually be able to hold a tarantula within two hours. You know, they kind of gradually increase your, uh, you know, they habituate you to to more and more anxiety. Um, same thing with elevators, ladders, whatever the phobia is, right? Um, so avoidance creates greater anxiety. Avoidance is this, this big issue with anxiety. Um, would be really, really nice for, for teachers to understand this kind of basic psychological principle. Um, th there's actually a lot of uh, success that there's, a, there's an organization called SPACE, uh, Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions, um, where they help treat childhood anxiety by bringing the parents in for training. Leave the kid at home. The kid has anxiety. Leave the kid at home. Come in and we're going to teach you how to stop accommodating your student's anxiety or your child's anxiety. Um, and and, and they've had you know phenomenal success with this, this form of, of treatment. Um, all that's to say, you know, that's the sort of training that every educationer, educator in America would benefit from. You know, this this bit, you know, we, we have anxious people all over, um, but but that you don't really see in, in, in public education today. Well, speaking of adding more education in the fire service, um, our actual hands on, you know, the, the trade school element of our training is fire academy, EMT, you know, paramedic, very, you know, work related job specific skills, which are um, incredible and a fraction of the cost of higher education. I actually I went to the University of North London and graduated also from the University of Florida here with my just my bachelor's, um, and you know comparing and contrasting usable skills, especially dollar for for credit, you know the trade school blew higher education out of the war. Yeah, and I've watched my wife go through. She's in optometry school now, so she's becoming a, a physician or you know, physician of optometry. But all of the prereqs that she had to do. I mean, years worth of prereqs, high level math and, you know, multiple Englishes. And, and you're like, you're not using this in this profession. So, you know, my my kind of view on especially American higher education is it's become such an industry that there's almost a um, uh, what's the right word? A disassociation between the career you're supposed to be sending someone towards and just padding the shit out of their course load <laughs> so you can make tens of thousands more dollars so in the the fire service for example it's a shame that we don't have higher levels of courses that include special operations training and you know like a, a higher level of paramedicine and things that you could 
create higher education but still more job specific but like you said it goes to the admin side like oh you want to go sit behind a desk one day well then take these classes and you'll have all the pieces of paper that you need so with that lens you know there's there's a yearning for more education in a lot of professions what is your perspective of higher education and again king for a day how can we change it so that a young man or woman that is basically going to voluntarily put themselves in debt to better their career actually gets the most efficient education they can for the lowest amount of money? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Um, I would say that it would it starts thinking about that starts with high school. Now, they have all these, you know, kind of silly ideas now that we should, you know, that we all need a college education. So we should we, we should fund that now, you know, not just to fund, fund a public education fund fund all the way through college education. I think the reality is that we waste a ton of time. There are, there are some fundamental, truly core uh, to thrive uh, subjects um, that all people need. And we mostly neglect them in high school. Uh, and so we spend, on top of that, we spend far more time teaching, uh, far, more, far more time in, in our, our, our standard education. Um, it, uh, than we need to, you know, we, students students could could finish that in far less time and get out there into the real world uh, far earlier. I think that most men and most young young men are not ready at age eighteen to to appreciate a college education. Um, the uh, the standard approach uh, and, and attitude towards college that I see is that I need to pay this money so that I can get this degree so that I can go out and get a job. So I I think that the norm structure should be flipped more or less. I think that you know most uh, men I've seen that have actually benefited from their their college education are those that go into the military, then they come back to it when they're twenty five, or they go get a job, they they're in a trade, uh, and then they decide they want to change change careers around age twenty five, and then they take it seriously. Um, I think it's far too too big. Uh, of an investment to just kind of blanket say that today's 18 year olds who, you know, long life strategy were less mature at 18 than we were 20 years ago. Today's 18 year olds who are less mature than than those 20 years ago should go in and should spend, you know, over $100,000 over the course of four years for an education. Um, the diploma is now uh, far, far more expensive and far, far less valuable than it's ever been before. You know, it used to be that, you know, for, for not very much money, you could uh, get a college degree um, and it would be it would guarantee you long term employment with benefits at a fantastic company. That's just not the reality today. Uh, you can also look at the great inflation in college. It's it's dramatic. Um, the number of hours on average that college students are spending um uh, uh, per week is uh it you know where, where it was I, i'm pretty sure this i've cited this in a couple essays um but where it was uh over 40 hours a week in the in the 60s it's less than 15 hours a week today um so you, everything is broken when it comes to how we think about college education uh, i agree with you i think that uh the the the, the best approach would be to um most of most of what we're trying to teach in a liberal arts university um, and, and, and most of what we need to teach students, I think, could be done in less time um, or or consolidated, at least through the standard education and, and done by the time we're 18. 
I think at that point it would make far more sense to kind of make 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 the training more uh more um in home uh <laughs> that you know as you're talking about you know that that each uh kind of more vocational more of an apprentice model uh that would make a lot more sense to me um but um I don't have all the answers there but I can tell you that the the, the the college education the uh model that we have the kind of the standard path to success that we promise children um is a broken model and that parents need to to question it and look for different routes um and and or at least at least to uh to, to be very intentional about the way they approach college um because i think most parents are wasting money on it on it on a just uh, basically for their kids to get a degree that uh, without learning much and then they're going out in the world without uh and, and, and having to learn on on the job uh, the skills they actually need well i know and this is to be fair this is the uk and the us i did sports science and exercise physiology so again the the goal was to be okay i'm going to be very well versed in the world of coaching and it's going to help me as an athlete but the classes were so myopic in what you were studying that I actually got so much more out of simply coaching at a CrossFit gym, taking, you know, strong fit certifications and the TSAC and uh, NSCA, CSCS, and all these different things that you could literally do in a semester that would give, I mean, the CSCS you can do in a semester, and that gives you pretty much the, you know, the most respected uh, strength and conditioning certification. So, yeah. and ironically, That's what in I did. UF, yeah. So, <laughs> and in UF, one of my semesters was simply, the CSCS. It was a prep course, and then you took it at the end. Um, so that was, you know, that was the the lens that I had. It wasn't like I've never been to college and anti college. It's the opposite. It's like I can go to paramedic school for a year and walk out the door, and then start cutting people's holes, you know, cutting people's throats open and sticking tubes down and putting needles in their chest and you know sending electricity through their body and deciding if they live, you know, if we call them as we're going to work them or if they're going to die. I mean, it's it's insane the level of responsibility. And the same with the yeah. fire service. That's in a year. Fire academy, you know, full time. I think it's like three months. I did it part time. So you know, you have these these professions where, as you said, it's condensed, it's compressed to the point, and there's an understanding, as you said, with teaching, that that's giving you the toolbox. But then it's your on the job training that you're really going to learn how to do it. But what I saw with the higher education, like you said, is there's no real sense of a profession at the end of it, unless you're in law school or med school or something that's very specific. And you're just kind of fumbling around these classes that don't even there's no synthesis between them. They don't they don't come together and, and give you purpose and give you a kind of A through Z journey that on the, the back end you're like, all right, I'm employable, I'm well trained, let's do it. Yeah, they're not a program to any any destination. Um that they, they are very very rambling on and and, and it I'm forgetting what it might be the Pareto principle or something, but it, I think that's I'm I'm thinking of the right principle, but basically it's Work expands to fill the time you've allotted for it, um, and 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 it strikes me that that's what we do in education over and over and over again. It's not about actually demonstrating a competency and a readiness. It's about okay, uh, you know, right now society accepts that they're going to pay for college for four years. We we we've got a we've got a uh, customer for four years. How do we fill that? Uh, you know, you know. So it's a, a very backwards model. Um, you know, so, so often we forget the principle, you know, the principles behind things, the principle behind education is, you know, 
to some sort of competency, some sort of dip- disposition, some sort of readiness. Uh, and, and, and when you forget those things and you just go, um, you know, you, you kind of go unintentionally through a model, a, a checklist, just because it's there for you, um, that's what you get. Well, let's transition to the strength and conditioning role. So, so you go in education. What takes you to, you know, to go into the kind of physical education side ultimately? Well, you know, being an athlete and being someone who loves training myself, um, they, uh, I, I just, you know, it, it was a hobby that I learned a lot over the years because I read it. Um, and so when I got into education in Texas, um, I also got into coaching. And uh, what, I, what I learned very quickly, you know, it kind of I was the new guy on staff, on the coaching staff, and I, I watched how they how the football team trained, how basketball, how everyone, the conditioning, the lifting. And um, it was it was quite obvious that, that that everyone was kind of just doing stuff they had done. There was no rhyme or reason. They they weren't running programs. They didn't understand really simple, straightforward principles of strength and conditioning. You know, principles of training of tr- of trying to create specific adaptations in the body. Um, and so there's an obvious need. Uh, and in Texas, there's 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 a need, and they they take sports really seriously. So um, I started to just kind of put thing, bring research to coaches, you know, as they were pr- designing their, their programs. Hey, have you seen this? Hey, here's an article on this. Hey, I noticed you're doing this. Uh, you know, that, you know, the research actually says that you should warm up this way. You know, I had, I just kind of gradually did that. And, uh, over the course of a year, um, you know, coach after coach on campus was like, Oh, well, you know, they were seeking me out to write their programs. So, um, it, it was right place, right time to some degree. There, there throughout Texas, there were uh, strength and conditioning coordinator was becoming a position where it hadn't been before. Um, so there were a couple other ones throughout the state, and I, I sought them out, um, kind of talked to them through what the route is to this. I went out and got like the CSCS, like you talked about, and a few other certifications, and uh, and, I, and I wrote a proposal to my district to create this position. Uh, and we, and you know, I I, I got the uh, the, the athletic director on campus uh in my corner kind of fighting for that too and uh and that's how that was created um as as i said it was a um it it was kind of born uh, out of the fact that uh you could strive for excellence in in athletics still you could strive for athletics and training and physical training where i didn't see really a route to do that very well in, in 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 academics well, I want to get to the physical education side, but before we do, it's a question I ask a lot of the coaches, especially if they work in colleges and schools. When I first moved to the US, and I apologize people listen to this podcast because I've told this uh, quite a few times, but I was blown away by how many men predominantly I met that were in their mid-20s, 30, um, that had the same Uncle Rico story. It was, oh, I could have, should have, would have been the next NBA, <laughs> you know, whatever star, if it wasn't for blowing out my knee, my shoulder, whatever. When <laughs> I started thinking, what the fuck are they doing to children in this country? That they're having, you know, geriatric injuries at in their teens or early 20s. So as I've progressed through and, and learned more, obviously myself as a coach and athlete, but also, you know, exposed to the education system through my boys um, and then hearing, you know, 
the the incredible coaches that are doing things differently, I realized that there was a very gray area between performance and the wellness of the of the athlete of the of the student. So, for example, you've got the obese, you know, huge junior who's six foot three and at the moment 300 pounds there's not a we need to get you losing some weight because of your health conversation it's like you're a brick wall on on the gridiron let's get you bigger and or the baseball pitcher and this is again to be fair this obviously involves the parents too this whole conversation involves the parents and we'll get to that as well but the kid that throws you know hundred thousand pitches with the same arm goes to travel ball and summer camp and and now all of a sudden you know again 16 years old his arm's about to fall off so you have a kind of unique lens you're on the the teaching side now you're on the strength and conditioning side what has been your perspective of that performance at the expense of wellness of some of our children oh you, you couldn't have said it better it is the the giant issue i see and um I've, I've done a lot of writing proposals in my district to affect health and wellness in the district, but this is a super tough cookie to crack. Um, here in Texas, I find that people do not value health, that the norms are such that we are truly uh, indoctrinating kids in norms that that are going to kill them young and create lifetimes of uh, poor health, of lack of energy, um, of pain. And, and, and again, we're shortening their lifespan. So this is... Um, a big pet issue of mine. Uh, sports is, is, is we've, we've really divorced uh, the idea of health from sports as, as wild as that is to say. Um, but, but we, we completely have. And, you know, part of that uh, is, is the success of American football as you know, you kind of reference the lineman example um, gaining weight for football, this obsession with gaining weight, especially among linemen, uh, to, who, who you know just treat their bodies like you know, like trash cans basically uh and, and they glorify that uh the, you know the big uglies or what, whatever um is it it's truly it, it's awful um and uh you know health has to be the the number one priority always um you know sports are phenomenal they teach you know some so many life lessons but first among them has to be a uh, and a, a value for health in, in, in throughout life. So I, I couldn't agree more. That, that there's studies um, I, I've cited in a lot of. Uh, I, I recently gave a presentation on this, but there's a study that that's showing that um, in the last, I think it's decade or two, um, athletes are actually more likely to be um, overweight and obese. Uh, than than not, you know, the former athletes are more likely to be overweight and obese than those that were not uh, competitive athletes throughout throughout high school, um, which is terrifying and backwards in every way, shape, or form, um, and, and fa fairly counterintuitive too. Um, it really speaks to the to the issue, um, but you know, you you see this, um, you see this in every single sports program. You know, the the, the foods they feed. They're at their athletes throughout the season when they're at a, at, you know, at a game or whatever. Um, there's kind of a culture starting at a young age in youth sports when we have the snack bag culture it blows my mind when I take my kindergartner to a, to, you know, to, to a, a soccer game. And the, I mean, it's not, it's not just an unhealthy snack. Now it's an, un, it's a, it's a, it's a Halloween bag full of unhealthy snacks um, that, that, that we feel like we have to give our children. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, a very very frustrating culture and to your point on the 
you know, the, the, the example of the baseball player. Um, baseball is uh, so this really gets into an entirely different arena that that is just as um, important to note. Uh, you know, two things are happening there. First, there's a lack of general physical preparation amongst athletes. Um, and so you're taking a uh, an athlete that is not very well developed, who sits inside, you know, who, who doesn't go outside and play as a way of being growing up, you know, who so they're not developing their just this general physical um strength, well-rounded general physical preparation that the average kid would have 30 years ago, you know, playing outside, climbing the monkey bars, playing tag. Um, there's a lack of core strength, um, all these things going on. Uh, and so you take this, this young person who lacks general physical development, and then you hyper-specialize them at a young age. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, pretty quickly, you get them into a situation where they're playing year round sport, the same sport year round. Um, this is something I've written, um, on called the, that I've called the, uh, the culture of youth sports exploitation. Um, and it's this, this, this really vicious circle where you, you know, it's, it's, it's most obvious in baseball where you, you basically take a kid, you, you make his entire life about baseball, um, often to the point where he blows his UCL, um, and, uh, his entire life that was about, you know, getting a college, uh, scholarship in baseball, which of course will not be a full ride. Uh, and they finally get that and they play for a few years and then they, uh, they might even go, you know, get drafted you know, 200 or 300 overall and, and spend a couple years, um, in, 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 you know, one, a, uh, professional ball, and then they come out the other side and they have no skills whatsoever uh, other than a fastball. And so they go into this th- this this industry of, you know, becoming a uh, of opening a baseball center. Uh, you know, they have batting cages and they then have to become part of the problem where they convince their their livelihood is based on convincing other parents that they need to put their children down the same exact model and pay them year round because they are relying on you know to pay their bills they're relying on these parents believing that they need to put their kids in year-round sports and year-round baseball um so it's 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 become a very toxic environment i don't know the answer uh, other than to inform parents and and um i've said many times uh we have to do something to make it so that that the healthy choice is to put your kids in sports um, because, you know, my wife and I talk all the time about, you know, what sports can we try to get our children into that are going to be healthy long-term for them? I'm very lucky. My son fell in love with running. I got him in martial arts. He did jujitsu for, for a few years when he was younger, but then he got just, and he is focused on the scholarship. His goal is actually to go to veterinary school like his granddad, which, oh, cool. you know, again, super pliable if he changes, you know, the day he graduates, I told him, it, it, as long as you've got some ideas, some things that you're passionate about. But even with the running, you know, he's getting the tightness in the knees. So I'm, I'm telling, all right, we're going to do some foundation training. We're going to do some, some, some exercises that are going to work on your posterior chain and get that balance back. But he's very yeah. fortunate that his dad at least understands somewhat, you know, some yeah. of these issues because I was broken myself. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. Hey, can I ask you real quick? What, do you have an opinion on uh, shoes footwear for runners? I'm so again I'm I'm not a runner and obviously it depends on the um the terrain me personally James Gearing I am a huge advocate in as much time as you can spend barefoot or minimal shoes as possible to me that's the go to and I actually took him shoe shopping he ended up I think it was with Brooks 
But there was a couple others they sent, and these things look like we used to call them moon boots when I was little. Like the, the, <laughs> the sole is like a freaking inch thick, and I'm like, you're yeah. totally detached from what you're running on you know you've lost all yes. proprioception so for me yeah the, i love it when he's running on the track and he has his um, cross spikes because they are literally like minimalist shoes so i'm just trying to every time he wants shoes trying to find the 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 most minimal leaning shoe to try and maintain as much of his you know integrity in his legs yeah yeah absolutely. That, that's where my bias has always led me to i, I, I tend to to uh to to err towards the biological norm but uh, I, I, you know, I certainly respect those uh, with other opinions. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs as well as uh, as, as other people for sure. Yeah, well, I had one a long time ago. I had a podiatrist on, and it was amazing when you hear again the evolution of the you know the sneaker. You know, uh-huh. it's just it has to change every year. It has to change. So it's it's very often very little wow. about performance and a lot more about recycling and changing looks and getting that demand. You know, because yeah. someone someone signature on a shoe isn't going to make you a good athlete, but it's going to sure. add another zero to the price. You know? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I definitely don't ever want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but the uh, the consumerist uh, marketing revolution has transformed society in so many ways. <laughs> well, you're talking about, and I love that perspective. You know, you you get a kid that decides they want to play ba- baseball, and good for them, good for the kid for getting off their ass and going to play a sport, but without that. Um, foundation of movement, um, just simple human movement. Then again, that's that's a fast track to an injury as well. Have you heard of the documentary, The Motivation Factor? Yeah, I have. I, I uh, in fact, boy, long ago, I actually got to to speak to Doug Orchard and uh, I think Ron Jones is the guy's name who 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 made that film. So uh, yeah, no, that's a. I've given many presentations at uh, to PE teachers on the uh, the La Sierra model and kind of the 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 what we can what we can take from that and apply to modern physical education. So, uh, big fan. My football team does the uh, La Sierra La Sierra strength and endurance routine. Uh, they do that once a week throughout their off season. Actually, they've got it down the cadences and everything. Beautiful. Yeah, Doug. Doug was on the show. We became good friends. Um, and when you talk about that, what I love about that whole philosophy, and for people listening, if you haven't seen it, firstly, firstly, you're one of the only strength and conditioning coaches I've had that has seen it, which is an absolute travesty, you know, that yeah. it needs to be well known. But Absolutely. the this kind of almost like belt system PE program that they do in teams, so it forges camaraderie, and they each level you have to test out, you know, X amount of push-ups and, you know, um, pegboard climbs and runs and all this thing and they get fitter and fitter and and the ones that are you know the most elite I, I would you know i would say they could all be on the front cover of men's fitness you know every single oh, one yeah. of these kids so you have this base level of fitness and if you want to go and then play the oboe for four years beautiful your lungs are going to be perfect for the oboe yeah. if you want to be a football player or a baseball player as you said you've got a phenomenal level of fitness and and um, muscular balance where it's going to give you the resilience to perform your sport, but it's not the only thing that you do. So it blows my mind that there was so much resistance to going back to that or a version of that. I, I yeah, I couldn't agree more. The um, I, I've made an argument many times. I've written, like I said, a, a proposal for my district on this. Um, the, there's a ton of research to show. Uh, that if you have uh, PE before your other classes, you will perform better in them. 
Um, it, it's it's such an obvious investment. Again, it's you know it, more time does not necessarily mean mean more out, outcome. Uh, if if we can honor the needs of the human body, we will get more out of it academically, um, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and, and so it seems like a no brainer. And, and when you're talking about what is core, what is core curriculum, um, you know, it, it, the, the reality is most, I would, I would say half or more of the students who go through schooling uh, will not need their junior level, will not use hardly any element of their junior level algebra class. You know, probably 50% would just won't ever use that. But every single student to a person uh, will need a, a, a will, to be healthier and to understand how they're, how, you know, to, to, to have a competency in human movement, to have a competency in understanding how to feed themselves and, and maintain their health throughout their lives. Um, that is a core competency for every single human alive. And we just completely neglect it. Uh, not only neglect it, but we we actively promote uh, habits that work against it uh, in our school system. It's it's you know, to, I I can sound like a nut saying this, but it seems like the most obvious thing in the world to me. <laughs> no, it does to me too. And like I said, going back to my upbringing, you know, I was on a farm picking stones and picking up hay bales and just moving and lifting and chasing and getting run over by sheep and all kinds of yeah. other stuff. So that's what you know. That's that's what the human when it's not. Um, you know, destroyed by technology, the comfort crisis, that's what we do, yeah. you know, whether it's Mongolia or Ethiopia or Tibet or wherever, you move, you climb, you lift, you know, you fight once in a while, whatever it is, that's normal human movement. And you don't need to have all these movement practices and, you know, yeah. uh, cold immersion therapies and all these other <laughs> things because you're just living and it's uncomfortable sometimes and that's a beautiful thing. Yes. So that I would argue Doug's, you know, the La Sierra model is is the absolute pinnacle. So let's contrast it for a second. What are you seeing through your lens of physical education in the American system at the moment? And then obviously we'll add on what about the nutritional side in the school cafeterias and vending machines? Yeah, I, again, it, it might vary from state to state, but the majority of states require hardly anything um, as far as uh Daily physical education is, is is non-existent. I think there's, I think Oklahoma may be the only state that requires daily physical education. Um, uh, maybe Illinois just jumped on that too. Um, for the most part, you know, in elementary, when I think daily physical education makes the most sense, um, oh, I, I shouldn't say that. I think daily physical education makes sense all the way through. But in elementary, for example, um, the my my son gets it gets it two days a week. Um, and that's at the school that, that is running my pilot program having three recesses a day. I mean that, uh, that, so they, you know, would value health. Uh, so an elementary kid getting it twice a week in high school, in my school district, uh, you must take one semester of PE, uh, one semester. And, and what that looks like by and large is a, uh, uh, you know, often students bring their phones in there. They're not dressing out like they once were, um, that, you know, they can walk the track, they can sit in the corner and scan their phones. Um, the, the standards are as low as they, can, as they can get. Now, this is in every school. I'm sure there are school districts that take a lot of pride in it. I'm sure that there are PE teachers in my own school district that take a lot of pride in it at the high school level. Um, but by and large, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, you know, 
a coach who's far more concerned about having time to prepare for his his team's practice than actually caring about you know we don't have we don't value health uh, <laughs> so then you know so, so they don't feel that mission of PE that I think should be there um, so yeah that, that that's that's what it looks like it's often um, you know if you're you're to compare it to the La Sierra model the La Sierra model was. Uh, very deliberate in what they were trying to, uh, to to create. They, you know, they had it split up into three unique spheres. Uh, you know, m- you know, martial arts being something they believed everyone needed. Uh, restorative arts being something that they believed everyone needed. And then, you know, games and uh, uh, you know w- was just a third of it. Um, you know, nowadays there's there's not very clear objectives. It's kind of just a, a haphazard throwing, you know, th- throwing things out there. And as long as you're moving, that's great. Um, you know, another great model comes from, um, oh, I, I want to say Libertyville um, in, uh, in in Illinois. Um, Paul Zatarski is the, the PE teacher. He's got a great TED Talk. But um, he, he, is, he is a different model than La Sierra, but he's had great results um, and, and uh, kind of kind of uh, focusing on on fitness and frequent testing. Um I, and, and, and small-sided games, so you know, rather than large, whole, big group games, he does what, what are called small-sided games. So it's like three-on-three three and a lot of things like that, where you can have a lot more three-on-three three games going on at one time so that everyone is active. Um, so th- that's a pretty cool uh, system that he's put together, too. Um, but I think that's something that you can really take from the La Sierra model is um, is frequent tests. It's kind of having benchmark tests. Uh, you know, the the belt system, they had the short system. I think that's extremely motivating. But just assessing frequently, having benchmark tests that you're allowing students to, you know, just you make it easy for them to test, uh, you know, on, on a consistent basis, maybe once every month, maybe once every two weeks, uh, and so that they can start to see the progress. And when you do that, I think that in and of itself is highly motivating. Well, one of the things that I talked about so much during the pandemic was we have a captive audience. This is clearly a virus that is opportunistic because most of this, there were anomalies. And that was basically we couldn't see under the skin of some of the fragility of some of these men and women that succumbed as well. But it was a clear um, mirror held up by Mother Nature that we are a very sick population. And if it's not COVID, then it's going to be called something else that decimates the next group of people. So no better time to now bolster PE programs, to now look at the way that we actually serve food in our schools. And it's funny because you, Jamie Oliver did a show in England and one in here, and it was like, you know, heresy. You know, you got the big Cisco trucks and they're coming in with all the God knows what ground up and serve to kids. Now you're going to, you're asking me to, to cook food, but you think about it again, go back not very long. That was the norm. You know, the yeah. dinner, dinner ladies when I was younger, it may not all have been, you know, picked from some garden around the corner, but they were cooking meals, you know. And um, so talk to me again about the nutrition side. There's a lot of kids, and we'll get to the home life next, but a lot of kids that aren't really exposed to, you know, home-cooked meals, especially to be fair, you know, there's some areas where mom and dad are both working just to try and pay their mortgage or single-parent family or they're growing up in some high-rise apartment, nowhere near a farm, even grass. Um, you know, what is your perspective of nutrition in our schools? And again, king for a day, what do we need to do? <laughs> well, you know, to, to your point, the, the 
the reality is we've made life so busy on families that I mean, it's never been harder for the you know two working parent households to keep their kids healthy. Um, we've made it very, very difficult with just how busy life is. My wife and I spend hours every week trying to prepare healthy, healthy meals. Uh, you know, and it's, it's outside of our work day that we have to keep ourselves healthy. Um, although, you know, I'm pretty lucky to have, you know, a weight room right there. Uh, so, but, um, you know, so, so that, that in and of itself, the cultural apparatus itself is, is, is not working with us. And on top of that, you know, in a sane world, um, the default would be for the schools to serve only healthy foods. And if you wanted your kids to have sweets and, you know, convenience food, well, you had to provide that, you know, the, but our defaults are completely backwards. Uh, the, if you, if you, you know, there's, there's no more, it's, you know, schools are poor health factories. Um, we, we, often start the school day far too early. My, you know, my school's high school starts at 725, even though all the research in the world will show you that, uh, you know, an adolescent at these ages is, is, is biologically inclined to go to bed later. So my, my students show up every day sleep deprived. Hardly any of them get eight hours of sleep. And that's, that's where we start them. Um, the breakfast options available in my school that so many of our students uh, utilize every single day are almost certainly... Uh, you know, th- it might be a funnel cake for breakfast. Uh, it's it's um, every single sugar bomb cereal you can think of, cinnamon toast crunch, etc. Um, it might be pancake on a stick. I mean, weird things like that. Um, but it's it it's it's all sugar bombs and uh, you know, chocolate milk. These are just just the standard breakfast options. You go through the halls, there's the vending machines, it's Coke, it's the same candy bars, the same chips that you were exposed to as a kid. These are all over. Um, our vending machines say, you know, have these these, these misleading slo- slogans on them straight straight from Coca-Cola, you know, that balance what you eat, drink and do as if, you know, 150 calories of of Coke is the same thing as a few almonds. I mean, you know, just this, this kind of. Uh, th- this culture that has no understanding of, of, of basic health uh, or respect for it. The PTA will be in the hallways a few days a week selling uh, cookies, Otis Spunkmeyer cookies, which, uh, you know, are, are, are more alluring than, you know, the siren song, you know, Odysseus, you know, just impossible to walk by, or they're selling Chick-fil-A biscuits in in the hallways. These are just, you know, we're constantly uh, making money off of uh, the the poor health of our students and and, and the indoctrination into this sense that these are normal habits to eat this way. Um, You know, lunch is the same as what you remember. It's pizza, it's burgers, it's nachos. Um, So it's this entire complex that is constantly funneling our kids to poor health um if you know the the fca meetings you know fca meetings kids are being handed uh you know cookies oreo packs all these things every single every single meeting uh you know we incentivize virtually every single childhood function is incentivized with more sweets with more processed industrialized food um if you're on a sports team you're traveling with that sports team. Uh, you're invariably being served pizza, and, and you know. So this is just the. There is at 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 uh, at almost no point in the student's uh, entire educational career are they exposed to any sort of value for health or sense that you know the 
the obvious wise or you know the the um yeah the wise uh option would be to go with a you know a, a sensible healthier option that's never even you know in 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 the uh, in the consciousness of of our kids um so when i come and i speak to our our athletes about how to be healthier about you know what they should should be doing what what are the the basic principles of health uh, and and how they can thrive in their own sport how they can feel better every day um it's a completely foreign notion and i'm very easy to typecast as the health nut um my perspective seems radical uh and that's pretty radical <laughs> yeah it's 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 sad is what it is i mean you know the fact that so many of these campuses now have allowed these fast food companies these soda companies to put their stuff front and center and yet demonize the concept of just bringing in real food because i know with with jamie's show the first few days the kids were like what are this but then kids get hungry and then they start eating it and for example they made chicken nuggets but they made it with chicken breast and some sure. breading and they you know deep fried it and had it with i forget what you know there were salads maybe even sweet potato fries i, I forget but they they had turned it so so you could still have the kind of foods that you like but it was a much healthier version um and then you know fast forward a couple of days and all the kids were eating it because you know they're kids they're just hungry they're, they're gonna eat what you give them um so yeah yes. it's, it's just maddening that that this is allowed and to me the same way as i am so appalled by for example fire departments that bury firefighter after firefighter but don't do anything to change it's the same with administrators when you're watching your kids getting sicker and sicker and fatter and fatter, how can how can you go to sleep at night knowing that you're allowing that to happen and that that you're forging a generation that from you know what I've heard a lot of people say is going to be the first generation where their parents outlive their kids? If that doesn't yeah. fucking haunt you, then I don't know what will. It it is staggering that there has not been adaptation. Uh, you know, the, the Harvard projection from a 2016 stu study was that of youth at that time, ages two to 19, um, over 57% would be obese by the time they were 35. I mean, the, the trajectory that we have set our children on is criminal. Um, and, uh, I, I stand up and I present these, th these, th these studies and, and maps and, uh, there's just not a lot of yearning to do anything about it. It's very interesting to me. Uh, I often, I think, you know, when I would talk to a sports team and I work with them to you know, do a healthier pregame meal, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm all, I'm often confronted with, uh, you know, cause, cause you can actually convince sports teams about the pregame meal based on the fact that, you know, you can convince them that this is going to help your performance. But even that they'll change on because their parents will push back and say, well, Johnny doesn't like to eat this. Johnny's not going to eat that before a game. That's not something Johnny eats. Um, you know, to your point, it, 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 they would eventually eat it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it is it's it's interesting. Um, it's the entire apparatus seems to be against that. Um, it's it, it's it's also interesting how we got to the state, because, as you say, we this was not the the norm structure 50 years ago um but it, but it, it there has been um you know part of it is it is the gradual decay of norms as 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 you as you win over a generation of of kids to these 
these cereals and pop tarts, then that is normal. You know, they, they uh, it just takes one generation and the norms can radically change. Um, part of it is misinformation. You know, the, the, the number of misinformation campaigns that, that have, uh, have worked in, uh, in the nutritional, uh, marketing space are, are, are pretty staggering. You know, uh, when I reference often, it's amazing ads about how, uh, it was the, I forget, it was basically the sugar lobby that ran them, but for, for, you know, over five years, they ran these ads about how Johnny crashes because he didn't have enough sugar, you know, take care of Johnny and give him sugar every day. Uh, and they have these pictures of these pretty women eating ice cream or cookies. And it's, you know, um, stave off the fat time of day, uh, you know, prevent overeating at dinner by having, uh, an ice cream or cookie an hour before, uh, your meal. You know, so there's this sense that we, we, you know, for for almost a decade, we're trying to convince people that uh, eating sugar was going to help them undereat later in the day. Um, just insane things. Um, so, it, so there's been such a, a an interesting transition to that uh, to uh, to this point um, that it's 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 very hard to unravel it. It it really takes. You know, this is a big emphasis in my book is that I mean the the there has to be a sense of duty amongst educators amongst the education system if you're going to see any change um there's going to have to be people that can stand up and say like this is wrong i'm here to do what is right i'm here to be the authority in human development and know uh, you know w- what is better and worse um you know maybe i won't know everything but i can certainly know that uh that that the the manner that we're feeding our kids in is is completely inappropriate absolutely well you mentioned your book setting the bar um it's funny when when you begin the book you talk about basically the kind of eye rolling kids kids these days mentality that a lot of people talk about and i've pushed back against that a lot because with so many things obesity for example you know it's all very well for me to say oh what's wrong with these people why don't you just get up at four and eat salad and run and be like me because i'm awesome when again you know i firstly i'm not awesome secondly <laughs> i grew up on a farm where we grew food and you know i raised livestock and you know had to walk three miles to the bus stop and it was ingrained my norm was this very active lifestyle and an understanding of nutrition it wasn't called nutrition it was just food but that was what i was groomed so how dare i stand on a pedestal and then throw shame so you've got to bring in the environment as well with the whole kids these days thing, the participation trophy, it's to me that rhetoric is doing the polar opposite of what I, I, you would assume one was wanting to do, which is discouraging kids of trying anything unless they're standing on the number one podium. You know, participation trophy. Well, I had to point out someone the other day, you ever done a tough mudder? 13 miles through mud and obstacles? What do they give you at the end? A fucking participation trophy. What's wrong with that? You completed this incredible adventure. You helped some people along the way. You kind of went through as a team. That's a fun little thing to look at and remind yourself of something you did. So there's a lot of rhetoric around that belittles Mm. children, giving no credit to firstly the ones that are out there getting it every day, like my son and all his teammates. But secondly, discouraging, contrasted with the Instagram you know, if you can't be this diver, then why even learn how to swim that we they struggle with as well? That Again, we've created an environment that discourages movement and uh, discomfort and, and a lot of the things that 
um, people claim fictionally that they were doing every day in their childhood. So <laughs> big, big kind of prequel to my uh, to my question. So, so talk to me about that observation. Kids today, I'll just kind of open with that. Yeah, well, I think it's important to, because there's also this knee-jerk reaction to the idea of kids these days that, uh, that well, because we've been saying kids these days, uh, you know, it's well-founded that every single generation has looked back, uh, you know, and glorified their own upbringing and said that we're, you know, the we're 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 headed down uh, the shithole right now with this th- this generation. They're, they're you know we're seeing our, our the decay of our civilization right here. Um, so there is a I think a warranted you know uh, knee jerk reaction to the, the the sense of kids these days. Um, and uh, my first chapter is is trying to help uh, acknowledge that though that might be the case the uh there is something very different about what's going on right now and uh you have to be able to recognize that if you're going to change course um and it isn't the kids who are to blame if this is happening it's the adults um we set the environment for them um so uh and it's certainly not to say it's every single kid and that's the the the, you know interesting thing when you're talking about uh, an entire generation. There are so many students today that you know th- that are at, at a level I've never seen before. I, there's example after example of phenomenal uh, outliers, uh, but by and large, some of the uh, you know, for example, the health of our of this generation. Um, it's not their fault. Uh, it's certainly not. But by and large, this generation is in. Uh, is is far less impressive physically and in a far worse position to live a good life than any generation previously. Um, and I do believe that 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 uh, being healthy and having a comp- a physical competency uh, uh, is is going to enhance your life substantially. So you know, by default, not being healthy uh, is going to diminish your life considerably. So, you know, um, that is that is worth speaking about. Um, the I, I opened the book with a um, a scene uh, where I'm biking to work um, like I do. And uh, I bike by a, uh, a group of students uh, waiting on their bus. They uh, this is something I did growing up. You know, many of the listeners probably did as well. Uh, we have these this vision of students waiting on a bus, probably, uh, you know, the people that that I waited on the bus, but they were they were like an extension of my family. They lived in my neighborhood. We were on the bus together for years. We poked fun at each other. You know, it, it, we knew everything about each other. These are, this is just a group and you see them every single day. Um, the vision you have of kids waiting on a bus is completely different than what you see today. You know, as I pass this group, they are it's a group of seven kids sitting on the curb not standing waiting on the bus they're literally sitting on the curb heads tilted to the side scrolling um and it's one of those moments where i think to myself what the hell are we doing to to, to these kids um i've had so many of those moments in the 13 years uh, in public education uh, so many of those moments you you know what you see in the halls is it, it's it's terrifying uh and it's not the kids fault we put them in a position where they think it is okay 
to live their entire lives walking through the halls, scanning these devices where they think it's okay uh, to, you know, not make eye contact with adults when they speak, where they think it's okay to, uh, to, 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 you know, to in every single moment of their day have earphones in, Um, you know, even, even in the classroom and they think it's okay to talk back to an adult when they're asked not, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of, of, of norms that that um are 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 in place today that uh, they're not the kids fault but they're they're self-sabotaging so uh, that that's the point i was making in that in that first chapter yeah and i think like you said it's completely appropriate and and that is you kind of underline something i've said as well if you're talking about kids today well who's responsible us the parents so really, we should be saying parents today and rolling our eyes. You know, they, yes. they are the product of us and our schools and what we've allowed to happen in our schools, whether we're teachers, whether we're parents. Um, and it is terrifying. I had a, a guest on Dan Bornstein who was talking about the obesity epidemic, especially in our youth and the national security element, like the, yeah. the, the group that we get to choose to become soldiers and firefighters and police officers is, is shrinking. I mean, you know, some yeah. people say we've still got enough. Okay, fair enough. And a very valid argument is the ones that are fit are really, really fit with yeah. CrossFit and mud runs and, you know, everything else has come through. Our I fit are incredibly true. fit. So that's beautiful. But that pool, you know, we, we get we get to choose from less and less and less. And the fire service right now nationally is going through a hiring crisis. So we have created this nightmare. And again, if you are a kind, compassionate leader in your community, you don't want your children to be obese. You don't want them to to have scoliosis at, you know, 12 years old from hunching over a device. So this is, you know, I don't, and this is what drives me crazy. The world will lose their mind over what's on the front of a Bud Light can, <laughs> but they're totally unmoved by the cancer and the obesity epidemic. Like absolutely. to me, the latter is more important personally. Oh, absolutely. We're so distracted from what actually matters in this country. It's, it's amazing. Um, yeah, to your point, uh, I, there was a report that came out in, uh, in January that 77 percent of uh, of people between in America between 18 and 24 uh, were, were not eligible for military service uh, because of uh, physical impairments, uh, obesity being the primary one. So yeah, it's it's uh, we're we're setting these these students up for failure. We're um, on top of the you know the the malaise the the, the the lack of energy, the disease, um, you know, one of the things that you're just not allowed to say, um, you know, my mother dealt with her with 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 her weight throughout um, the majority of her adult life. Uh, about ten years ago, she she lost over a hundred pounds. She's kept it off since then, um, and she talks all the time about how much it changed her life. She's very passionate about this, and she's she's told me, so, you know, it was this giant you know, uh, this weight on her, uh, her, her psychologically, uh, for so many years. And she talks about, you know, what it was like to, you know, that how she felt getting on a plane, how she dreaded being on a plane and feeling like, you know, she was, she was, you know, to, she, the, there was this chair that she was, you know, not able to fit in like she had wanted to. Uh, and, and, and there's so many scenarios, um, you know where we should not we should be able to talk about how yeah there 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 is a 
real psychologically psychological effect of this and it has nothing to do with fat shaming it's just you know the the reality of not being the person that you you would want to be and that's hard on people um to to another thing that you said though um you know rather in kids these days we should be saying parents these days i think that's absolutely true um to to a degree I think that these parenting trends have been uh, in place long enough now that uh, a lot of parents in my generation are simply passing on what their parents did, too. Um, So we're really in a pickle when it comes to that. Uh, And the other thing is we have no um, precedent for dealing with some of the issues of today. The world has has, has gotten really complicated for parents Uh, when we talk about uh, youth sports. There's no precedent for the modern youth sports environment. It used to be that, you know, it's pretty much uniformly, uh, you know, you put your kids, you know, you, you encourage your kids to play sports. They're going to play for the, 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 their school teams. They're going to be able to compete. And it's going to be a, a net productive, uh, you, know, you know, quality experience for them. Uh, that's not necessarily the case anymore. And the um, the other one that is this is, is obvious is the the smartphone the smartphone has really changed parenting uh and 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 we have not get gotten a grip on what are the uh the the productive norms for society in regard to uh to, to smartphones and parenting so let's expand on that a little bit um that is one area that a lot of the the mental health professionals have had on that specialize in in kids or did at one point in their career all point to i said the social media with it comes and i saw it with my son my i when he was younger, he had a phone because he got to the point where he was able to get on the school bus. And I'm like, okay, well, this phone is a great device for me to to keep tabs on you. Okay, if you're going to go out and play with your friends, you're, you're this age now. I'm going to start kind of trying to loosen the apron strings a little bit, but I want you to check in every 30 minutes just so I know you're right. Then you, you're good to go, you know, and you get off the bus. Okay, I'm, I'm dad, I'm, I'm here. Okay, beautiful. I know where you are. Um and so he had that. Well, my ex allowed him to have Instagram. And it was at a turbulent time in his childhood as well. It was, it was around the same time when we had the issue with the school because she was dating someone at the time. It was very um, toxic between the two of them. He was exposed to you know arguments and he was kind of hiding in his room. The times I had to go around and pick him up and they were still arguing. I didn't even know he'd gone because um, <laughs> they couldn't hear him when he was banging on the door wow. from all the screaming. And again, not this is not throwing shade at my ex. It's just... This was the reality of this child's exist- existence. And I watched this this social media, which I had on my phone. Um, really, you know, he was taking pictures of himself all the time and putting it out there. And I was like, no, we're done. You know, and I took it off. And then it was, you know, a year or so, a couple of years before he was able to, and he'd matured and become a very, very different stage of his life. And then, you know, it would go, okay, now all of his friends have it. They're all communicate through Snapchat. Okay, you can have this. You know, we're going to we're going to monitor it again and we're going to taper if we have to. So, again, it's not demonizing the technology, but I got to see, you know, if a kid's not in a good place, this fucking technology can be (laughs) devastating. I mean, we know it sent some children to suicide. So talk to me about, you know, your observation of trying to raise a child when they are exposed to the social media world. Yeah, uh, the. The thing that is very pronounced and noticeable to anyone who walks into a school is the the smartphone is the great lobotomizer. And that is very troubling to me. Um, 
I think that the only way that we can, in a world where technology so often substitutes for human capacity, the only way for humanity to thrive is to have a um, a clear ideal of human excellence that you you know incul- inculcate in your culture uh, and and you set as a standard for your culture. Um, and uh, I see the exact opposite in our culture. I see I, I see smartphones and hyper palatable foods uh, creating really putting us on a trajectory towards you know the 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 uh, the Wally. Uh, the humanoids and Wally, that dystopian view. Um, and so that's very troubling to me. Uh, it, it, as a, a, a now retired teacher said to me um, that, uh, you know, standardized testing day she was talking about and how uh, it used to be a nightmare for teachers because kids had to sit there for hours doing their standardized tests. They were fidgety. And when the f- final test went in, Uh, You know, the whole class basically erupted in pandemonium, like they couldn't contain themselves anymore. And she says, uh, now um, the entire, you know, three, four hours of standardized testing, you see the kids just sitting there so anxious to get their phones back. And as soon as that last test is is handed in, they, they all rush to get their phone, they turn it on, and it's as quiet after the test as as it was during the test. Uh, And that's terrifying. Uh, and that's been my experience. Um, I've talked to, I, you know, I, I've throughout my school district, I've been asked by a lot of principals to come speak to their parents on this, on smartphones in, in particular and technology in particular. I had a, uh, a fifth and sixth grade, uh, our intermediate, intermediate school, as we call it here, principal tell me about um, a game night they hosted for their families at the beginning of last year. And they, you know, they, they brought in bounce houses, fifth and sixth grade. They brought in all these, these things, you know, the cornhole boards, the whole nine. Um, and uh, it was a game night they were putting out there for 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 families and uh what ended up happening was the students showed up and they walked around the whole time on their phones and so they did the same thing this spring but they they were explicit about saying no phones and she said it was a completely and a radically different event everyone running you know, blast families interacting it was everything she had dreamt of uh, and the only difference being the smartphone so, you know, I, 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 you can kind of look at it as, 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 you know, it's, it's an environmental design thing, you know, you, you, the, this experience, whatever experience you're setting up, whatever environment you're in, you know, whatever experience you're going to have, it looks this way. If there's, a, if, if smartphones are available, it looks this way. If smartphones are not available. Um, and that's not to say that these tools aren't awesome tools with phenomenal upside. Um, you know, the, the amount of, learning I've done from from podcasts and audible uh, are fantastic. Uh, the amount of you know the, the way I can organize and and, and and capture information and utilize later in my writing and and thinking based off of my OneNote app and so many other apps is amazing. Um, but that is not how you know, first of all, we're not instructing anyone in how to use it that way. If you're going to use it productively, you're going to have to do that uh, based off your own initiative by and large. That needs to be that part of the core curriculum nowadays. Um, we're not instructing people how to avoid manipulation by these devices, how to understand what the device is, what the, the you know specific mediums, platforms, uh, how what what the economic structure is that they make money on, and what they're trying to do, how they're trying to manipulate you. So we have not given any uh, our our families or our students a frame for framework for using these devices with without being used by them, um, and so that you know. 
we are, uh, you know, our biology is often being manipulated. Uh, I, I like to give the uh, analogy of, you know, I was sitting on a dock in Florida, in St. Pete, Florida with my nephew, and we were watching a, there's a fluorescent light underwater. And there's just these these fish circling that fluorescent light all, all night, just constantly. And we're watching them. And my, my nephew, Braden, says, uh, you know, why are they doing that? And, uh, and, you know, I, of course, had to crush the, 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 the nice little moment and say, well, it's just like humans in the smartphone. It's the endless scroll. You know, basically, these fish were designed for a world that did not include underwater lights and so their biology has been hacked and now they're 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 you know without knowing why they're just mindlessly circling this this light forever it's the same thing as humans on instagram um and to your point again they're not all negative things but we have not been giving a framework for using these tools without being used by them um and so what i think um I, I think there needs to be, you know, a, kind of a set of tech manners that schools start to help teach. You know, I think it has to come from the schools that schools need to be in the authority in human development and they need to help parents think through these issues. Um, because when they don't, it, it puts a lot of pressure on parents. You know, for example, um, the argument I make often to parents is, is listen, you know, Jonathan Haidt has, has a ton of research. There is a ton of research out there that really points to, um, to, to the fact that social media more than any other factor is, is causing this, this, uh, mental health epidemic in our, in our young people. Um, the, there's, there's, a, if anyone's interested in looking at Jonathan Haidt, He's uh he he's put a ton of uh his his research and arguments onto his Substack uh, after Babel, uh and I've cited that quite a bit. Um, he's also in the process of writing a book on this called The Anxious Generation, um, and uh, so it's great research. He's also testified to Congress about this, um, and uh, but one of the most important things you can do to empower parents is to help them um. Uh, it, it, or to help, first of all, to help students is to delay the age of, of getting a smartphone. Um, one of the best things we can do is tell parents that you don't have to give them a smartphone first. You could just give them a standard flip phone like we all had. Um, it's it's the number of options. The other thing we don't ex- instruct parents on is, you know, if you give them a smartphone, there's screen time there's bark there's all these apps to monitor uh there's a a lot of fantastic apps just in the ios or you know uh, android has the equivalent um there needs to be education on this process because it is you know it is an entire world it's very complex um but one of the most important things you you could do is as a school is say like based off of the research we recommend not giving your kid a smartphone until this age. You know, Jonathan Haidt, the age he goes to, which is the age that uh, that, that, that uh, Bill Gates went to, it's the age that, that that Tim Anderson, a lot of other people in the tech community have done with their kids, is 14 for a smartphone. Um, and so to, to look at the research and to say to parents, we recommend waiting till this age, here are the steps we recommend the process for giving your, your kid a smartphone, how you should introduce it. I think that needs to be there in the modern world. It might sound a little invasive or too much, um, but they're suggestive. It's education for the parents. And what that does is it, it empowers the parents because what I see is so many parents who say, I didn't want to give my kid a smartphone until junior high or high school, but by age 11, 
all their friends had it. And I was stuck in this position where I didn't know if I was doing more harm by keeping them from this world that their friends were on or by giving it to them. And and so we're putting parents in this very, very rough situation when we don't give them that information. One trick that I did because it was a smartphone that mine had when he was in, you know, started getting the school bus um, was I gave him the, the, the ability to, to phone, but he didn't have the data. So he could phone if there was a problem. And of course yeah. he could use Wi-Fi, you know, if he was around, but most of the time he couldn't access any of those things, but he could download Spotify and have music and make phone calls and do all those things. And that was a kind of happy meeting because it is that that is a real thing. Otherwise, you're the loser with no phone when everyone else yeah. is like, oh, I'm going to send you my snap. And you're like, yes. you know, what is what is snap? <laughs> you know, so, so and it sucks, but it is what it is. But I, I realize, yes, there are some things and even and that's on the other side, the ominous side, just for parents. One of my guests, I can't remember who it was, recently told me that they're are apps that are disguised to look as the calendar app, the clock app, and actually are secret social media apps. So as a parent, you got to be be careful that your kid isn't duping you on what is on their phone too. Yeah, they're uh, they're always a step ahead of us. <laughs> There's no no doubt about that. Yeah, and I know that screen time and bark are, are kind of uh, some of the 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 standard. Uh, monitoring uh devices but but uh, yeah i would look into that for sure absolutely well so that was your book i want to get some closing questions so i can be mindful of your time and obviously we'll get to where people can find the book is there another book that you recommend it can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated Oh, I love this question because there's so many books I recommend. Uh, one of them will be one that you referenced in your book. Uh, it's it's the first one I always recommend, which is uh, Tribe. Uh, I think that to understand the the modern world, the modern experience, how to thrive in this world, uh, you know, anyone on your uh, who's listening to this podcast, I, I'm that's the book I would I would start with. Uh, Tribe is an amazing book. Um, the uh, some of the other ones, I, I referenced Jonathan Haidt. Uh, his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, is is probably um, a good way in on him. Um, Righteous Mind, I liked more, but it's it's a little bit more, you know, for psychological nerds. Um, but he also wrote um, The Coddling of the American Mind, which um, is, is is more well known, and it is uh, it, it's a good primer on some of the issues going on with with youth today. Um, so 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 i would i would definitely recommend those as well my dad actually recommended that book to me i've got it sitting behind me but i'm writing a book the second book so i haven't had a chance to read it yet but he's uh -huh. like you know this whole kind of wokeism um you know even my how is my dad ae ae1 and he's just like it's you know he's blown away because he's a pretty middle of the road kind common sense kind of person but these extremes you know obviously there's an equal one on the other side it's just he's pulling what little hair out has you know he has left out <laughs> like what, you know what is going on here for crying out loud so yeah. yeah all right well then what about films and or documentaries ooh that's a good question um i mean i don't have any uh you know i did my favorite documentaries i there was a great documentary on enron but i don't know that i have anything um, it's called the smartest guys in the room. I just found it interesting. I don't know that I have anything, uh, 
particularly valuable um, documentary-wise film. It's the standard ones, uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> that was a poor uh, one, wasn't it? Saving Ryan's Private. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Braveheart. Uh, you know, the uh, Gladiator. Um, all those, all those standard uh, greatest films ever uh, <laughs> are my go-to's. Brilliant. Well, next question: Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest? to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, gosh. I wish I'd prepared that. I'm going to leave someone out and kick myself later. Uh, <laughs> well, you can always, you can always send me other ones down the road. This, I, this I'm going to have so... to think on that and send, send it to you later for sure. Um, yeah, gosh. Uh, if, if, if you can get Sebastian Younger on, uh, not to go back to Tribe, but that would be just phenomenal. And it, 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 it seems like it'd be right up his alley. He's certainly... Uh, has, has dedicated his whole life basically to thinking about the that, that type of worker. Yeah. No, he's actually been on, I think it's three times, um, and he's coming on again oh. in September. So, yeah. Yeah. We've, How uh, am- Dude, I'm going back to listen to those. He, yeah, I have a slight man crush on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's phenomenal. He's just such a yeah, phenomenal thinker. Yeah. No, truly, truly amazing man. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find the book and yourself, what do you do to decompress? Um, well, I, I read differently. I love to read. Um, I skateboard. Uh, that's, that's kind of a new hobby that I've picked up. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always trying to learn a couple of new hobbies. So my best friend, uh, he, he's really into skateboarding. Uh, he actually works at a skateboarding company. And so he got me into skateboarding. So that's been good. I'm learning the guitar, um, and, uh, you know, workouts and uh and and long walks uh you know getting up early for walks and then of course just family time i've got uh a wife a wonderful wife uh and uh two two kids uh a boy and a girl ace is six and my baby girl bricks is gonna be five here in about two weeks so uh so yeah that keeps me keeps me pretty busy <laughs> and did i hear right in one of the other cut the uh, other interviews i heard you on that you adopted the kids yes yes yeah we adopted so ace was uh they, they are um biological siblings uh ace was 18 months and bricks was uh she was just born when we adopted and uh yeah that's that's been pretty we're unbelievably fortunate um adoption is it's a challenging process for sure, and it it couldn't have worked out better for us. We just we've got two amazing kids, and uh, yeah, we're just so fortunate. Beautiful. Well, it kind of circles around to the the theme of this conversation. You know, I love that phrase. If you want to change the world, start at home. You know, and and the world needs mentors, and it needs parents that are present. And we can't again uh, demonize a household because it's got one parent or the grandparents are raising. You know, we need all of us to. You know, it takes a village. Everyone to kind of fill in the gaps and and help not only in our own home, but then step outside our front door and, and make a difference in our community as well. Yeah, it, you know, going back to to the, uh, the the reading question, there's there's two essays. Um, that I would recommend to people. One, one, they're, they're both titled "Get Serious." The first one is "Get Serious About Suffering." The second one is "Get Serious About Purpose." They're written by Catherine Boyle, um, but but that is the uh, her "Get Serious About Purpose" really makes a strong argument for the uh, the importance of uh, 
of having a purpose larger than yourself and of contributing um it, it, and as, as really the backbone of uh of, of a good life and a fulfillment. So, uh, yeah, that, that I couldn't agree more. So the book setting the bar for people listening, firstly, where can they find that? Um, it's, you know, anywhere you, you buy books, uh, you know, online, you can get it at, uh, you know, through, through Barnes and Noble through Amazon is, is probably the most common way of getting it. Amazon, uh, it's just setting the bar, um, uh, yeah, you, you can order it on walmart.com and, you know, really wherever you, you like to, 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 to buy your books. Beautiful. And then if people want to reach out to you, where are the best places online or social media? Um, the, the best way is, you know, I check my email more than social media. Um, I, I am on, uh, Instagram, uh, I, I, for most of my, you know, so I have a newsletter and, and I usually t- do a post whenever I have a newsletter, uh, go out. Um, but, uh, but, but, but through my website, trottershane.com, that's T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S-H-A-N-E.com. Um, there's, there's a link to email me through there. My email's uh, on the website as well. Um, and yeah, I, I love hearing from people. Beautiful. Well, Shane, we could have talked for another four hours easily, but I, I want to be mindful of your time. And I do have a child that's... Uh needs to be fed so (laughs) but i want to thank you so much for all the different areas that that we've walked through today and being so generous and coming on the behind the shield podcast today Uh, it's a pleasure to be here this has been a blast thanks so much james